John. Yeah. I am so sorry that I just crashed our gigantic Mad Max inspired hot rod. I'm going to miss that so much. It was really good at cutting through zombies. Uh, and I'm so sorry I drove it into the river. Hey, w- wait a minute. Is that a building over there? Yeah, let's go check out that mysterious structure. Let's walk across this sand real quick. Okay. All right. Okay, now up these stone stairs. And now across this concrete parking lot. And let me just open this chain link uh, gate. Here we go. Oh, now we'll walk through this metal tunnel. Okay, and now across this creaking hardwood floor. Let me see if there's power. Let me flip this gigantic company switch. Oh, John, look, look, a, a TV seems to be flickering to life. Hey, look at that. Oh, and there's a there's a Blu-ray player. Oh. Oh, and some, some podcast equipment. Hey, what's in the Blu-ray player? Why, it looks like <gasps> 1962's Carnival of Souls? Okay, I haven't seen that one before. It's not like we're doing anything else. Should we watch this thing? I think so. I think we're safe for at least the next uh, 78 minutes. Theme song. Hello? Hello? Is this thing on? Looks like it. The the meters are going. Yeah, let's do it. I'm Jonathan Irons, and uh, with me as always is Theron Sackington. Hello. And this is Board the Windows, a podcast where we take zombie movies seriously. And if you can hear us out there in this post-apocalyptic wasteland, well, we've just finished watching Carnival of Souls. It says it was directed by Herc Harvey, written by John Clifford, and starring Candace Hilgas, none of whom I've ever heard of before. How about you? No, but uh, Herc Harvey, uh, apparently I had seen some of his work before, but we will we will really? get into that. Yeah, oh. yeah you, you will be surprised, uh, okay. I think. Looking forward to it. Theron, uh, do you want to go ahead and summarize the plot for everybody? Yeah, absolutely. Carnival of Souls is about a young woman named Mary Henry who starts a new life as an organist uh, moving to Salt Lake City from Lawrence, Kansas, after being the only survivor of a car accident, uh, which she should not have survived because apparently the car was underwater for three hours. She has no memory of how she survived or anything like that. She packs up her life and moves. Along the way, she's plagued by visions of a sort of otherworldly figure, only known as the man, who's this ghoulish person wearing a a black suit and with a grease paint white face. Uh, And it's ambiguous as to whether or not she is the only person who can see him or if he's a figure of her imagination or what. She encounters all sorts of other men in town. Uh, Her like lecherous next door neighbor at the boarding house, a doctor of some sort who claims to try and help her, but it doesn't seem like he's doing much. And the, the whole time she, she keeps having these sort of disassociative episodes where no one else can see or, or hear her for long stretches of time. I hate it when that happens. Yeah, I know. Right. Eventually she, uh, disappears and is revealed to have been dead the entire time 
never having left the river. That's about the shortest way I can do that. Uh, this movie has a, a lot more going on than that uh, extremely simple plot might suggest. <laughs> if you've ever seen the Twilight Zone episode, The Hitchhiker, it's very similar. I don't think I have. Yeah, it's it's pretty similar in terms of her being dead the whole time and it being ambiguous as to whether or not these are her like last thoughts before death or if there's something else mm. going on. We can kind of talk about what what we think. This movie was shot on a contemporary budget of like $33,000, which is even in today money only like 300,000 or something. Yeah, I all of the numbers I looked at was basically add a zero to it and you got today's money. So it was about $336,000. Wow. Which, like, honestly was a lot more than I expected. Um, you know, it's still it's still very low budget, but um, they, I'm surprised they were able to raise that much. Well, I guess the, the director uh, was known for making, like, industrial training films and safety films mm -hmm. and stuff. So he was known in the Lawrence, Kansas business community. So he just mm -hmm. kind of went around to a bunch of people that he'd worked with before and said, do you want to throw in 500 bucks? And enough people did. Wow. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> yeah. It, it's, it kind of reminds me of reading about like the production of evil dead for the first one yeah. where they just like went around to all their friends and all their friends, dads and like <laughs> grocery store owners and stuff. And yeah. uh, just kind of like grassroots <laughs> yeah. got, enough dozens of producers to throw in a 500 or a thousand here or there mm -hmm. to shoot a film. And I think like clerks, I remember being the same way. Kevin Smith talked about having to do that. Yeah. And also like maxing out credit cards and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's just very not ambition, but like, gosh, I would have a hard time asking that many people for money. Yeah. The problem is all the people I know are people who work in theater and film. And so none of us have any money. Yep. I guess it's not that dissimilar from, <laughs> I mean, it is crowdfunding, right? Right. Just you didn't have the internet to do it. So you had to walk around and go ask people individually. Yeah, exactly. But you, you kind of had the advantage of these people already knew and trusted you. Sure. Yeah. Unlike crowdfunding where you need to have kind of a proven track record for people to take a risk on you, which is yeah. just kind of normal business behavior anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I speaking of the budget, uh, one of the, the things that I read that I thought was really interesting was that Candace Hillegas, the lead actress who played Mary, she was reportedly paid $2,000 for her work in the movie. And it doesn't sound like much, but at a zero and she got paid $20,000 for three weeks of work. I mean, in today's money. That's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. And she, there's a quote, she did an interview in 1990 and she said, it seemed like a fortune so much so that my husband quit his job as a waiter to concentrate on his acting career and got his first Broadway part almost immediately. <laughs> now this was this was the 60s where you could walk up to the president of jobs and say i'll take one job please <laughs> and they had they had to give it to I you like one yeah. leading role <laughs> yeah the standard rich and famous contract of course for, yeah you go for... up to orson wells the president of <laughs> <Yeah>. jobs <laughs> um 
So one thing I'm sure you're saying, but Theron, this isn't a zombie movie. Uh, why did you pick it? And I'm not totally sure other than I had heard uh, that George Romero was inspired by this. Uh, now, later I went on to look that up. And the problem is I can only find that attributed to some quotes from 1989, mm-hmm. none of which cite any sources. And like I can't find any mention of that in any of my many, many George Romero books that I have. So I think that's apocryphal. 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 Yeah, I would believe that because I saw the same over and over. It was Romero said he was inspired and David Lynch said he was inspired. And Yeah, but then, you know, you watch Land of the Dead and there's the scene where all the zombies come out of the river and it's almost identical. So at some point, yeah. at some point, he must have seen it. I would assume so. And I wrote down that same that, that same uh, inspiration I noticed when they were coming out of the water. Yeah, which is really, <laughs> really cool. It is. It's a great shot. There's there's nothing to it. It's just some actors walking out of uh, a swimming pool in in one of their apartment buildings. It's not even in Salt Lake. That's that's Kansas. But it's just it's really it's really creepy and weird. And they're all looking straight at the camera as they do so. Mm-hmm. And there's that, that creepy makeup. And- th- there's that one woman who has like not quite a smile on her face, and then the other yeah. guy who looks just like he's like leering. Mm-hmm. Kind of, they all just picked one expression that doesn't quite make sense, and it, mm-hmm. it works. Yeah, it gives it that that eerie quality, sort of un, unsettling. Yeah, but uh, overall, like any zombie movie, this is a movie about something that is dead that refuses to act like it. And I think mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. there's my there's my tie-in there. That's that's the support beams holding up this whole thing sure and i i think i mean it's early enough in the history of zombie movies that i i, I think it's still fair to refer to these ghouls or monsters as you know like proto zombies at least yeah absolutely the same way people look at you know psycho is like a proto slasher <laughs> right, right it's right. there there's a template being laid here that will be mm-hmm. perfected elsewhere mm-hmm I would say definitely made a, a lasting impression on me. Like I didn't know what I was getting into either when I started watching it. And it just, it kept surprising me with great shots and the makeup and the eeriness of just kind of everything all mixed together. Yeah. I was really surprised when I watched it where I, I finished it. And then I, I said, is this one of my new favorite movies? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a great feeling when, when that happens at the end of a movie? Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, I, I think I had that last with like Fury Road, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was, I want to say, Everything Everywhere All at Once. I, I still got to see that. Uh, if if we enter one of the uh, designated survival zones and we can come up with some, some 5G reception, we will download that and watch it. Amazing. Um, NATO, if you can hear us out there. Actually, NATO, if you can hear us, just send a helicopter to uh, this abandoned dance hall that we're in. Yeah, what are we? Like 1001 abandoned dance hall way? That's right. Yes. So just uh, Google that. I imagine there's only one. And just come come grab us. <sighs> Thank goodness Google survived the apocalypse. <laughs> I don't know. We might have been better <laughs> if, if they hadn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was I was really hoping for the Tracer Tong ending to this one. <laughs> the what? Oh, you haven't played Deus Ex? Well, you never uh, will, because there's no. no more computers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I played a tiny bit of Deus Ex, but I, I don't really remember any of it. Uh, one of the endings is uh, spoilers for Deus Ex. You didn't think you'd be getting that in a movie podcast, did you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> spoilers for Deus Ex. One of the endings is that uh, they destroy the internet, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be pretty apocalyptic. Yeah, and the, the guy is like, we'll live in villages again. Uh, because, you know, that's part of the part of the thing he, he thinks is, is lost is this sense of like community. And that's one of the reasons why like these giant mega corporations in the cyberpunk future can can exist is that we're also separated from each other and everything. Uh, much like Mary Henry is in this movie. Should we talk about this in a more structured way? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Uh what would you like to start with? I mean, just kind of the beginning and we just go through it like bit by bit. Um, sure. I think it's it's astounding that the movie just starts and a guy in the worst fucking hat I've ever seen in my life comes up. <laughs> you mean uh, Jughead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, evil, ju- evil Jughead comes up and he's like, you want to you want to drag? <laughs> and, and it's, it's not a cigarette. Yeah, and uh, well, and then the driver of the the car, another woman, does have a cigarette, yeah. and I think that's really funny. And yeah. the, the main character of the movie doesn't speak for like five or ten minutes almost, because she, the camera's right. the camera is not even on her. She's just sort of incidental mm-hmm. to this. Uh, their their drag race across this bridge. It's not totally clear if they are run off by being like rammed to the side or if she loses control the guys bump the other the car, car. yeah yeah and that's great because that's sort of like where the ambiguity of the movie starts is was this mm-hmm. you know is is this manslaughter or is this negligence you know <laughs> right yeah. uh like right away there's this question of how how on purpose was this also, a uh, fun story about that. That bridge, I guess, spans two counties. He got permission from both counties. The director, Herc Harvey, did to, you know, ram a car off it. They said, all right, but we're going to, we, you do whatever you want. We're going to charge you for the repairs. He said, all right, it's fine. Uh, yeah. The the bill showed up for $12. <laughs> I read something about that. And I <laughs> I like that even with inflation, it's still laughable that, the bill was $120 to fix the entire railing on that bridge. Yeah. It looks like they just threw some like two by sixes up there to fix that. Yeah, but practically. I mean, I, I can't imagine anything similar happening today. Can I run a car for a bridge? Oh yeah. But you're going to need 800 permits. And mm-hmm. yeah. Insurance and is, covering everything. And this is, this is going to take four days of shooting to do this this one mm-hmm. thing. They got it they got it in one take. Oh, huh, thank goodness. <laughs> and then they got the car out of the river on the first try. So that worked out really really well for them. Wow. Okay. Did they also film taking the car out of the river then? Was that part of the movie? I have no idea. Okay. I mean, there's at at the end there it shows them Right. It shows them dredging and pulling a car up, but we don't see them actually. You know what? I guess no. The the car is just kind of on the bank half filled with water. Yeah, you're right. And then we already see the actresses in 
inside. Mm -hmm. But that, that scene where she crawls out of the, out of the river. Yeah. Is incredible. She, She does look like someone who's, who's clawed their way out of a grave. You're right. It seems very realistic. She's not terribly wet, which is kind of weird, but you're not alerted right away to the fact that something is terribly wrong with her. It's just like, oh, she managed to get out of the car and swim to the surface or something. Yeah, but it's it's also funny that they said, you know, they, the, the car's been underwater for three hours. Like, there is... Oh, oh, I missed that part. You're right. Oh, yeah. There's, they're like, the, the car's been underwater for three hours. Yeah. We may never find it at this point. Because mm-hmm. they've got, they've got like deputies and volunteers and stuff out dredging the river for this car. And then she crawls out of the bank uh, very far away from everyone. And just, she looks so shell-shocked. Yeah, she did a really good job with it. And I love the the camera looking down from the bridge at her crawling up. And then when it cuts to the reverse, it's her standing center and, you know, just looking completely bedraggled. And then 20 dudes all rushing down off the bridge to look at her. And I, I love the way that it both like centers her as the main character, but also the way that they're all looking at her, but you as the audience are forced to imagine what she looks like. Because her back is turned to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they just kind of throughout, they had a lot of nice little touches and editing choices and composition choices that, that worked very similarly. There's such a such a deft hand here, despite the fact that I, I mm-hmm. know a lot of this was kind of improvised. Like the director describes it as guerrilla style more than once. And I, sure. I don't disagree. Like later on, they're in the department store mm-hmm. and um, – the way they did that was they they walked in, they set up everything, and then they found the manager and said, "Can we shoot a movie?" <laughs> what a gamble! Well, he he was like, "When do you want to come back?" And they're like, uh, "How about right now?" And here's a hundred bucks. <laughs> awesome. Did did they say which department store it was? Uh, no, it was just some some local departments. They weren't really like chains in the same way uh, back then. So it was mm, just a, a local like department store. Um, yeah, I guess the manager was like, well, you know, it's 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning. It's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go right ahead. Thank you for this thousand dollars. that you Yeah, just me. what a what a night. I mean, it's it's more money than he was going to make in sales <laughs> <No>. <laughs> over the same period of time. And also, I really like the, the power move of like, no, this is happening right now mm-hmm. uh, because you don't you don't want to give people time to to think about <laughs> reasons to say no. <laughs> To say no or to to mm-hmm. negotiate up, just say no. We're we're ready now. We're gonna shoot this scene. That's the art of the con, baby. I know it's that's the always carry bolt cutters <laughs> advice. <laughs> do you do you in fact always carry bolt cutters? Because boy, we could use them right now in this abandoned dance hall. <laughs> I I I lost them. They were in our giant Mad Max inspired muscle car. <sighs> well. <laughs> I put, they were on your side, so really, this is your fault. You you moved them because they were in the cup holder. You said I can't put my my coffee down anywhere. I'll move the bolt the, the bolt cutters over here. <laughs> and now, what's that in your hand? Oh, it's your coffee cup, John. <laughs> All right. So she's she's crawled out of the river, and then then what? And then basically just like. Heads bang to Salt Lake City. Uh, 
there's that scene in the organ factory where she's practicing mm-hmm. and they have, and I'm, I'm not totally sure what's going on with this, but it's, it's again, the like, okay. there's this otherworldly feel to it where you see different people reacting to her organ playing. And some people are like, stop what they're doing to go listen to her. And some people are shaking their heads at it. So you, you get the sense there's something, there's something off about it. Mm-hmm. Well, even just the music itself, I think, is kind of just creepy. Yeah, just in, I mean, by virtue of being organ music, absolutely. But, you know, later on, they, the minister says, like, oh, we have an organist who can stir the soul. Mm-hmm. But also he's the one who kicks her out because her organ music is too blasphemous. So, like, yeah, there's some, there's some quality about whatever she's doing that – uh, and this is like the magic of cinema to me, right? Of like, okay, it is creepy, mm-hmm. but also in the world, people are having a reaction to it that like you and I simply can't. It's it's a real like you had to be there mm. kind of moment. And I, I think that that makes the whole thing more otherworldly. Sure. I can see that. It's got a little bit, not not really in the camera work necessarily, but it does have some kind of cinema verite yeah style to the whole thing just because it feels like these are you know with few exceptions these are all not professional actors right yeah they're just people that they found yeah probably the actual employees at the organ factory Mm -hmm. oh and that's another thing is uh when herc harvey told john clifford hey i've got this idea for a movie and by an idea for a movie i mean i saw a cool building and I need you to That's write all my ideas start. <laughs> and I need you to, to write a movie and it takes place here at this cool building I saw. And in the last scene, there's a bunch of ghouls dancing in the ballroom of this cool building. Yeah. And the guy said, OK. And then so like he, they had this organ factory in mind. They had seen it for some reason. And so mm. John Clifford wrote that in. That's that's a still operating factory in uh, Lawrence, I believe. No kidding. Well. Or at least it, it was as of a few years ago. I, I watched a I watched a, a documentary oh, cool. like special features mm-hmm. thing. But so like they had this organ factory, just like they knew it could be a location, and so that's how her becoming an organist got written into the movie. It's just hey, I, I know sure. what we can do, and that's how the whole soundtrack became organ music because they also had access to to an organist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a real write what you know, but in a good yeah. way this time. <laughs> write what you know, being a disoriented woman who keeps popping in and out of existence. <laughs> Girls, same. <laughs> so then she packs up and, and leaves, and they even ask, are you going to visit your family? And she goes, nope. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah, I am going straight there. Well, well, we'll see you next time you're in town. Nope, I'm never coming back. What a... What a weirdo. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Before that, she's asked, like, uh, the organ proprietor, he says something about, like, ah, going to play in a church. Mm, must be, you must be spiritual or something. <laughs> I'm and not taking says, the vows. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not taking the vows. I'm only going to play the organ. Yeah. It's just, it's just a job. Uh, she doesn't have a, a spiritual dimension to her. Yeah. And also, part of me wonders um, people must have known her. She had friends in that car. Mm hmm. So you got to wonder, is she acting completely different? Sure. Yeah. And we don't know. Was she always like this or are people just sort of putting their assumptions on her? Like, Mm -hmm. 
if you're playing the organ, you must be spiritual, which I also have to wonder if Zack Snyder <laughs> had. No, give me give me a second. If Zack okay. Snyder was familiar with this movie, because there is an organist in Dawn of the Dead, uh, the 2004 movie. Oh, the remake. OK. In the remake where uh, they, they are trying to have a funeral for one of their departed. Yeah. In, in that movie, and they ask him to say something, and he goes, it was just a job. I just played the organ. Ah. So I, I, I wonder, I, I, I very much doubt that was a direct reference, mm-hmm. but you do wonder if, he, if he'd seen it and like that, that wormed its way in there of people do work in church. It doesn't, sure. it's not a calling for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And then, so on her, her drive to Utah, uh, that's where she first sees the man, right? That's right. She sees the man who is played by director Herc Harvey. Um, According to him, quote, uh, both out of ego and economics, I think was the way he put that. Uh, So I said quote earlier is more like I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But it was both to give himself a a role in the movie and also because I, the director, can work for free in my own picture. Mm, True. I'm kind of surprised he well, just like. It was such a small crew. I read there was only six people, I think, including him. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he was directing and probably producing and location scouting and being in the movie itself and so on is uh, that's just a lot of work. Yeah, but it, it doesn't sound that unusual for someone who's used to making training films and educational films. Right. Yeah, you can definitely see see that connection. You can see how that skill set would would serve you very well mm-hmm. for that. I I also watched some of his um, his industrial films, and he is the lead in in more than one of them. Oh wow! Does he do a decent job? I mean, he's he's fine. You know, they're industrial films. Yeah, I I read that he started as an actor before becoming a director. Yeah, but almost almost everybody did. You know, very oh. <laughs> very few people. Sure. Yeah. What I mean is like. You don't get a ton of people who come into show business not through acting. Right, right. There's there's not a lot of people who are like, nope, only ever did lighting, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of gold standard, gold star lighting designers, <laughs> rather. Um, but uh, you do get a lot of people who start as an actor because like that's, that's the most visible, uh, recognizable part of what the industry is and then quickly find out that they – have other interests yeah it's like being in theater in high school like exactly once, once you find out there's there's more you can do with it like it becomes more appealing did you happen to find out where the design of the makeup came from since we're talking about the the first visit from the man i i think he just thought it was creepy uh i kind of got the sense that he he thought of this this quick simple thing he could do mm-hmm. um also fun fact uh this movie languished in semi-obscurity for like 30 years and then had a big it developed a cult sometime in the like 80s and in 1989 it it like got wide acclaim and it was on Siskel and Ebert and got some sort of release or something yeah there was like a a re-release based on a new restoration I think yeah, and it was shown uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, and then afterwards there was a a reception and a little Q and A, and he showed up in his suit and makeup. Uh, <laughs> nice, <laughs> you know, and answering some some pretty like normal 
technical and artistic questions mm-hmm. that you always get with films, but he's wearing this this <laughs> white grease paint and like <laughs> basically shoe polish around his eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I think he just picked it because it would make him look eerie and uh, it was very easy to apply. Uh, I know Candace Hillegas mm-hmm. talked about how, you, you know, when you're on a, an indie picture, you are also your own makeup department. So I think he picked makeup that he knew he would be able to reliably put on and take off. Makes sense to me. Tricks of the trade, you know. Yeah, e- e- economy and ego. Uh, yeah, working working hand in hand. Again, also, I, I guess uh, grease paint would be waterproof, so that was probably another. Uh, yep. Another appeal of it because they're the the ghouls are are underwater a lot, emerging from water. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's a couple scenes where he is just lying in like a fountain mm-hmm. uh, underwater or something and must must have gotten like staff from that. <laughs> you would <laughs> you would think because he's just lying in like this still water in this abandoned amusement park. <laughs> Maybe it was just the the apartment swimming pool again with some sand thrown in. Oh, yeah, you, you might be right. You're probably <laughs> right. I didn't think of it. <laughs> no, this was a documentary that took place in real time. As most movies are. But yeah, she keeps seeing uh she keeps seeing this man and he look he really does look kind of sinister. And like mm-hmm. he's just this this middle aged fella uh with a creepy <laughs> creepy white face and a weird smile. And he's he's not always smiling. Sometimes he's just looking at her. Yeah, I like that it's more it's like sinister rather than scary. He doesn't have open wounds. He's not baring his teeth. He's not running after her or anything like that. It's just sort of eerily uh, watching her. He's just a presence. Yeah. And, and she's she's worried about him because, like, he seems to be stalking her. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about her neighbor, John Linden? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> uh, played by, is it Sidney Berger or Berger? Oh, good question. I would imagine Berger. Yeah, let's let's pick one and stick with it. Um, so her neighbor is played by Sidney Berger. Uh, we've decided we're going to pronounce it like that we apologize if that's incorrect uh her neighbor john linden uh so she's got a room at a rooming house not a boarding house oh uh, oh because she doesn't get food that's right yeah the, her her landlady uh even says that but he is, has the room down the hall and he is a fucking creepo <laughs> is that yep. fair to say he more than fair yeah he he plays the the creepiest slime ball mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of a man I have ever seen in <laughs> just about any movie. Um, he's fantastic. He is so good. He I think he is the acting wise the real star of the film. <laughs> really choose the scenery. Uh he he munches on the scenery. He's he's not he's not chewing it. He's not chewing it. He's swirling it around in his glass. He's getting the scenery's bouquet. Ooh. He's he's really getting the mouthfeel on this on this scenery. <laughs> he's enjoying he's enjoying the scenery. Really tasting it. <laughs> that is a that's a nice way to put it. Actually it reminded me, like I want to say it's the first time that they meet, um, and he's just kind of practically barging into her room while she's changing. 
yeah, she she's in the she's in the bathtub. Her land her landlady, uh, she she believes is bringing her some sandwiches and and coffee because um, it's her first night in town. And her landlady says, "Well, this ain't no boarding house, but I do have some sandwiches, so I'll bring you some." Which sounds sweet, but boy, is she weird. Well, that's because that's because Mary Henry's being a weirdo by the time she arrives with them. But so he, yeah, she's expecting or she gets out of the tub. Uh, she's just wearing a towel. She walks to the door and she opens it and this guy just slides in and she's like, I'm, I'm not dressed. And he's still trying to talk to her. And she, she has to go mm-hmm. wait over there for God's sake. He's such, he's so like forceful about it that it's, it's, it's almost worse that than if he had been violent. <laughs> with sure. it. Do you know what I mean? I because do. it's, it's the, the threat is there mm-hmm. more than, more than anything. He's just so invasive. And um, he even like leers at her through this crack in the door while she like takes off her her towel underneath her, her bathrobe. I like that uh, they did an extreme close up on just his one eye looking through yeah. the crack in the door. Fun fact, uh, mm-hmm. Sidney Berger was apparently blind in that eye. So, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. And so he was in grad school for acting. At that mm. time, and a bunch of his friends saw that, and they're like, "How'd you do that? What was you know? It was the '60s, so height of like the method, right? Mm-hmm. Capital mm-hmm. D, capital M." Uh, and they're like, "What? You know, how'd you how'd you accomplish that? What do you do?" And he goes, "I don't know, guys. I'm blind in that eye. I like I don't, <laughs> don't know what I was doing." <laughs> yeah, so he's like leering at her through this, and there's that extreme close up on his eye, and the creepy organ music gets like sexy for a bit. It, got, it does this little like. <laughs> but it's an organ so it's still weird it's like barry white but played by a church organ yeah absolutely (laughs) and uh he tries to ask her out to dinner uh but he's such a creep about it that she turns him down then she steps out into the hall to like make sure he's gone Mm -hmm. and she sees the man staring up at her Oh, right. From from like the entryway, right? From the entryway. Yeah. So then she freaks out and then that's when the landlady shows up. So that's why she's being you you said she's being real weird about it. It's because Mary Henry has just had another encounter with the man. And so her first question is like, who's the man in the hallway? And so this landlady is now very worried that there's an intruder. So she's. Yeah. That's why she's acting so, so strange about it. Well, what I'm. I actually meant something different, just that even from, you know, the very first shot of the landlady, her that actress's delivery is just very odd. Yeah. Like there's something about the way that she she speaks that it's almost like every line is hinting at something, but you have no idea what. I I do also want to jump back for just a second to the the neighbor, um, because I really, really appreciated how the before John leaves, um, He's, you know, he's still trying to ask her out and do all these gross things. But the shot is specifically the door to her apartment, her bedroom. And Mary's on the left side, pushing against the door, essentially trying to close it. And then John is on the right side of the frame and just using his body to block the door from closing. Yeah, just, Um, hey, hey, never do that, anybody. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no real, real quick. If you're listening to this and you've ever done that, don't. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, but it's such a great 
like subtle uh staging choice by the director um because it it just allows those actors to to subtly play up that feeling of like oh god this guy is so creepy and you can see him like you said he's not being violent he doesn't like slam the door open or anything like that but you can just see his hands sort of like almost sexily go to the doorknob to try and hold it open and he's just constantly you know just nudging back while she's forcefully trying to get him to leave i really like that oh god he's horrible i mean we we say we like we like his performance uh we cannot condone his his actions as a creepo (laughs) as a real creepo king creepo also, one one thing I do want to highlight about his his performance uh, mm. before we get much further is that both of the actors, uh, him and Candace, were a little uncomfortable with some of this. And you know what they did? They, uh, according to her, Carvey, they went off in a corner and they talked about it for a while. Okay, like the two actors, you mean? Yeah, the two actors. Okay, and until they could until they could figure it out, and they were both, you know, again like method people, so they were determined sure. to make it work, but. I just appreciate that because half the time when you read any interview from someone, especially in the 60s or 70s, mm-hmm. is you know the, the director will go, oh, well, the actors didn't like the material. So what I did was deprive them of food for four days and kept them <laughs> coke. <laughs> and I had PAs kick them every time they fell asleep. And then – and then after that period, they were able to come deliver an incredible performance. And everyone goes, what a, what a genius. Yeah. Wow. Yep. What, a, what a visionary. But no, they, they did the thing that real actors do and should do when they're confronted with difficult material is they went and they go and talk about it. And they trusted each other as professionals. And then they came out with this amazing performance. <laughs> and presumably not on the 78th take. <laughs> 78 takes would take their entire three week shooting schedule. <laughs> Although their first that I think that was one of like that might have been their first day of shooting. Oh, and okay. uh, it a, a lot of the stuff in the boarding house was very early on. Um, and I, I do remember them saying, like, we started at uh, 2 p.m. on like Saturday and we finished at eight in the morning on Sunday or something. Yeah. Yeah. I've read about a lot of like all-nighters and seven days a week kind of stuff, which is is rough on everybody. It's, yeah, I mean, we've all done it. Yeah, it's not fun. I mean, I'm glad in some sense that Candace got paid so much to put up with that kind of a hectic uh, shooting schedule. Yeah, um, this, you know, this this movie feels, um, okay, and now let's, let's pause for a second, because mm-hmm. we are two... Uh, you know, two white dudes mm-hmm. um, in the modern era. This movie still feels very much like, and I am not speaking from any experience. It feels like it captures the experience of being a woman, and uh, I. It, it is very hard to tell if that is something the director did on purpose or if that was kicking around in his mind. Mm-hmm. Um. And I am I'm not just guessing at that. That is a a a, a thing women I trust uh, who have also seen this movie have told me that like, hey, this this captures this feeling really well. And so that the, the fact that there are all these these men who have different ideas about like who she is and what she can and should be. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's done really well. And like with with a surprising amount of sensitivity, given the time it was shot and written in. I 
agree 100 percent. like i i felt the same way watching it uh even the first time through i was like wow there's so many great like what i would call feminist pieces of this movie and you're right all of the men throughout the whole movie are just so patronizing and condescending or yeah you know only see her as a sex object or all of the men in this movie, like the the major ones, are you know her her neighbor, Doctor Samuels, who we'll get to, uh, the minister, and then uh, finally even kind of like the guy at the organ factory. Yeah, they all like take one look at her or listen to one thing she says and assume they they know everything about her. Like mm-hmm. they've 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 built up this whole picture in their mind that they filled out and she had nothing to do with. So. Yeah, John Lyndon assumes she's this like sex object. The minister assumes that she's religious. Um, so does the organ factory boss. Mm-hmm. Dr. Samuels is like talking about Freudian stuff, mm-hmm. right? So like that all these all these men like are are trying to put her in a little in a little box. Very much so. And and that box is shaped differently based on which man is trying to put her inside it. <laughs> Like they're, they're all, they're all projecting outwards based on like what they think women are, but Mm -hmm. none of them are, none of them are trying to get to know her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, is that is probably part of the reason why she's so like standoffish and isolated. It's like this, this has probably been happening to her, her entire life. Yeah. As I'm sure happens to sadly so many. And I think, uh, the thing I wanted to read you was there was an essay on this movie from 2020 uh, or February 2020, the year, not the uh, old TV docuseries. Um, <laughs> it, the author is Merritt Meacham from the University of Utah, and uh, she wrote about her experience of trying to find the pavilion and like get a sense of what the shooting must have been like and and all that. And towards the end she touches on all of these same themes in a really nice way and the quote i pulled was mary is trapped by men more than she is trapped by death with her matter-of-fact outlook on life it is not death itself that seems to bother her but rather the hostility of a male-dominated world most poignantly she is terrified by the fact that no one will listen or trust her experiences mary gets most upset in the moments when her existence seems to be slipping and she seems to have disappeared from the living world with no one acknowledging her. And that was like the central theme that I took out of it was this woman just feeling this terrible isolation and alienation from those around her and especially men. There was that horror movie that came out last year, earlier this year, that was just called Men. And I think that would men, have been a, yeah. a fine title for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, Alex Garland could have uh, written this and also expected another pat on the back for it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I, I really like a lot of his movies, but uh, like the, the fourth time you write a movie about how, how much uh, women are disrespected, like, mm-hmm. Hey man, um, you got something, you got something going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We we all agree, but also maybe you're not the only person who wants to write about these things. <laughs> Sorry, go watch Annihilation. It's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about uh, Dr. Samuels? Sure. 
Yeah. Did, was there anything oh, but, in particular or do you have a question? No, just I, I guess first, uh, yeah, she she while she's in that department store, she has an episode where everything goes all swimmy and suddenly no one can see or hear her. And the only sound she can hear is her own footsteps. Uh, she's even like outside next to a jackhammer and uh, can't can't see or, you know, can't be seen or hear anything. Uh, and then suddenly it, you know, the episode just kind of ends uh, but she's, in the park, you know, she, yeah, she's just having like a, like a panic attack just running around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly she can, she can hear again. She goes to a water fountain. Uh, she thinks she sees the man again. Um, and in, in her hysteria, um, a, a helpful older gentleman named Dr. Samuels, uh, immediately grabs her arm and shouts, listen, you're, you're hysterical. <laughs> Come with me. I'm yeah. a doctor. <laughs> Grabs both arms and like shakes her practically. Yeah, you know, real a real helpful thing you can do. Um, <laughs> to, 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 if you're to, notes. Yep. to to anyone in, in your life suffering from uh from some sort of uh, nervous condition, a great thing you can do is is uh run up to them, uh grab them by both arms and shout that you're a doctor. <laughs> um and then he he takes her to his his office, um, and there's so many things going on with the scene. One that she, you know, he's like is he's already made up his his mind that this like this man she's seeing is uh, some sort of figment of her imagination, right, right. Uh, because like all of his questions are about uh, like, well, does he resemble someone? Your father, perhaps, uh-huh. or or. Some other man in your life? Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, I I wrote that part down because um, I was like, this is almost like medical gaslighting, which also happens to women all of the time. Um, yes, and then after all that, he says, "Well, I'm not a psychiatrist." <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Why am I here? You in, you implied that you were. Uh huh. Yeah. So <laughs> when you uh, said, "I'm a doctor, I can help you," right? Doctor of what? <laughs> A very confident man claiming to have more expertise than he actually does. I I read some books once. I can probably fix this broad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah perfect word choice. Um, anyway, it, while he's talking, the, the next question he has is, do you have a boyfriend here or back home? And she says, no, and I have no desire for one. I'm surprised to hear myself saying that but it's true i have no desire for the close company of other people i i think there's an interesting um and some other people have, have commented on this like mm-hmm. uh, the podcast horror vanguard mm-hmm. uh had an episode about this um and i'm not i'm not really prepared to go into more detail but i i think there is a a legitimate like queer reading of this film uh Based in part on on that line, like is she uh, is she a lesbian? Is she asexual? Uh, we don't we don't really know, and we don't totally have enough to go on. But I, I think again, there's a you know we're we're just waiting on the slam dunk like queer crit essay on this <laughs> film. I think so. If if you're out if you're out there, do write that. <laughs> I think at the very least, it's 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 very clear that she knows and feels that she doesn't fit in and that she has her own ideas about how she wants to live her life, her work, 
all all of these things, and she's just constantly dealing with other people having completely different ideas for her yeah. life. As as part of my prep for this, mm-hmm. I I read um, the feminist. I'm sorry, the feminine mystique. Oh yeah, by uh, Betty Friedan. Yeah, yeah. and um, I, w- I was surprised to see a lot of what was on the page kind of kind of reflected up here. So that mm. book came out a little after this movie, I think, but you could you could tell that this was like in the air, and mm. she does spend a lot of the book talking like doing a, a teardown of sort of Freudian psychoanalysis because, mm. uh, and here I will here I'm uh, citing my sister by the sixties. Mm-hmm. Freud was not the was not the psychiatry in practice. Okay, does that make sense? Like we had we had evolved the field enough where uh, people who were uh, you know doctors of the mind of any kind mm-hmm. uh, were were no longer really using Freud except as as the basis of the field and like oh the idea that you're, you you know trauma is a real thing that you can carry around with you. Yeah, it was almost like he was sort of out of fashion. Absolutely. However, he was very much like the pop psychology go-to. So like writers and journalists who didn't know much better were kind of discovering him and writing uh, essays about it. And like if you you would watch any TV shows or anything from the time – the and there's a you know a scene where someone is is going in for psychoanalysis it will be the freudian like i'm on the couch i'm you yep. know not looking at the the thing even though none of that stuff was really like be considered good practice anymore mm-hmm. um and i i think it's great that this this doctor of of ambiguous uh credentials um <laughs> is like is is trying to to do that he's got his back turned to her her chair is mm-hmm. facing the other way um while he's taking notes um it's that same thing of like he's doing this thing that doesn't work and it certainly isn't like appropriate and which he is apparently not even trained in <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but he's like oh no i i can i can handle this and it's it's exactly the sort of thing that he that is written about in in that book, right? Like mm-hmm. the the idea that so that if you haven't read it, the the feminine mystique is an idea that all women will be satisfied by their duties as housewife, not homemaker, housewife mm. and mother. That's patently ridiculous. That that one hundred percent of people would mm. would be satisfied by those things. Certainly, certainly many people do find those pursuits very satisfying and uh, frankly should be compensated for their, for their yeah. work. But the, the idea that uh, all, all women uh, have this sort of biological imperative where they will only be fulfilled by those activities is, is nuts. And so that's, yep. that's what that, that, that book is is about is is defining the problem and kind of putting words to it. Mm-hmm. So the the book is considered to have kicked off like second wave feminism, and I'm, I'm not going to get into a a ton here. Uh, there's a lot of problems with second wave feminine like feminism that it 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 left a lot of people behind because um, mm-hmm. Betty Friedan um, 
was she was she was not a, she was not like a scientist or anything. She was a journalist, so she was writing uh, she was writing a book and she was interviewing people she knew who most of them happened to be like white suburban housewives, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of who second wave focused on. And I, I think a mm-hmm. lot of that cri- the criticism leveled at it is legitimate for that. Um, and also, it's probably a social good that it happened. I agree. Let me take another giant sip of respect women juice. <laughs> Boy, I'm glad you have so much of that on hand. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm drinking it right out of your I Heart Beaver uh, coffee mug. <laughs> what? Uh, all right. So what happens after the doctor? Um, the, after the doctor, the movie, uh, she gets fired from her organ playing job pretty shortly after that because she mm. has another weird like episode. Uh, mm-hmm. While she's playing the organ in church, and she she transitions from church music to playing like spooky carnival music. Yeah, is that a fair way to describe that? And she she has these she has these visions where she sees people emerging from a lake and dancing in this in this pavilion that seems to be the same one that she she saw on her way there that she's been, we have not uh, mentioned this at all. And that is a huge problem on our end, but she's also obsessed with this pavilion. She at at one point, like asks this minister to drive her out there. Uh, After she's talked to the doctor, she goes and visits it to see if there's anything. It's like this abandoned place. It's, it's been fenced off, but you know, the fence isn't that hard to sneak around. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. she's, she's able to walk in she sees some things like she has some strange occurrences there, like things move on their own or like, uh, like mm-hmm. the, 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 the pillow case, the mattress, there it is, falls down the big slide or like yeah. she hears noises and stuff, but there doesn't seem to be anything there. So she's, she's willing to write it off as all her imagination. But then she, she enters this trance while she's playing the organ. Uh, she sees these visions of people dancing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and it's the, it, it more like ghoulish people, right? Like they've yeah, got, more they've all got the makeup. They've all got the makeup from the man. It's all, it, they're all doing this this waltz, and mm-hmm. uh, the director calls it many times a, a, a dance macabre, which is oh yeah, that's what I was just trying to think of. Yeah, yeah, the the sort of medieval uh, image of like a parade of skeletons mm-hmm. uh, walking along a path, or like you you see something similar in uh, what's that Seventh Seal. Yeah, <laughs> and also uh, Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. Yes, and also um, Mask of the Red Death. Uh, all the, all these all these things. You you mm. see this 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 image of like it's a pro- a procession of dead souls is called a dance macabre. Mm. Um, and so that's that's what the director calls these these scenes with these ghouls dancing. And so she's she's playing this organ while in a trance uh and then uh, another thing you should do to someone in a trance is slam your hands down on top of their hands <laughs> and sh- and shout sacrilege. <laughs> I mean it, it seemed to have worked. She snapped right out of it. <laughs> sort of. She doesn't talk for the rest of that scene. <laughs> no, he then doesn't. he he yeah. he demands that she resign mm-hmm. and then as she's walking out he's like by the way come to church. You can still <laughs> you can we still can be helped you yep yeah but it's 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 a real like you know in into faust like your soul is not lost you could still come back mm-hmm. kind of as a result of that she she finally like accepted a date from uh from john and he picks her up they go to a bar 
uh, she's starting to like panic as he is coming on to her harder and harder. And it's it's really the thought of the thought of leaving the bar is what's making her panic, I think, in in that scene. What do you what do you think? I think so. Well, it seems like almost uh, how do I want to like she doesn't I mean, she doesn't want to be alone. She also doesn't want to be with him, but she doesn't know anybody else. She has nowhere else to turn. Yeah, I think that's it is that she like she's had this weird experience coming out of the church. She's just been fired like everything is she doesn't want to be alone as she says out loud. And then, but she also, she doesn't want to, she doesn't, she doesn't want to go through with it either. Yeah. And I, I, I can't blame her. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> Cause this, no this fucking guy, this guy sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they, they, they go back to her room. He tries to follow her in and put the moves on her. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts trying to kiss her and then she looks in the mirror and it's, Oh, it's not him. It's the man smiling at her and that's that's when he loses interest because she freaks out and you assume she's crazy yeah uh this is a red flag to me he says right and leaves and then she tries to escape town and is mm-hmm. is always waylaid by ghouls as she does like she tries to, during another one of those episodes where she can't be seen or heard by anyone else she tries to get on a bus but it's full of ghouls i loved that <laughs> That reveal too, like she she can't hear anything, but suddenly the bus announcement comes over. Yeah, the bus she can she can only hear the bus announcement eastbound. It's so creepy that that bus announcement too, and that shot when she opens the door to the bus and walks in, and like not only is it full of these ghouls, which is like a startling cut, but all of them are smiling yeah. and standing up as if they're like super happy that she's come to join them. It's very creepy. They they start to pursue her. Yeah, yeah, she. You know, there's there's a, a, a weird little bit where, like, all of that is revealed to have been a dream, or was it? But it, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter because she winds up back in the pavilion mm-hmm. where she now has visions of being part of the dance. And now she's wearing the makeup. She's like... Well, she's like watching herself, right? She's watching herself, yes. She's yeah. watching herself in the dance, but she's also simultaneously dancing now with the man as her partner. And uh, she kind of snaps out of it and screams. The ghouls chase her out onto the like salt flats. And then the next day, Dr. Samuels is there and the minister is there and mm-hmm. police are there. And there's a series of footprints uh, that just kind of like stop. So she, you know, like like Elijah, like ascended directly into the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And then we also cut back to Kansas, where the, the car is now pulled out of the river and Mary's body is in the front seat. What do we what do we want to zoom in on here? Specifically with the ending or just? Yeah, with the ending, I just kind of rushed through the ending because we've been gone for a second. But um, mm-hmm. I know th- I know the people want to hear what do we think really happened? Uh, so before we get to that, is there anything else we want to like go to? Sure. I guess the other thing that I would bring up is like thematically aside from the like gender politic and feminist angles i think there's also a lot of really interesting i don't know sense sense of self and connection to other people i'm not saying that very eloquently but like this struggle that she seems to be having with not wanting to be alone and yet also wanting to be herself and to do her own thing and with the these ghouls, I think that one way that you could argue that they are very much zombies is I think you could say that they can also represent that sense of just like the unthinking masses 
they're haunting her. They're chasing after. They're trying to pull her into this world of of people. And and then, like you said, at the end, in the after she sees the dance, like they're chasing her. And I think there is a little bit of a. You could argue that there's like an abstract idea there of running away from the world and other people. To me, also the ghouls seem to have some sort of sense of community. Yeah. And also hu- like happiness and humor. A lot of their Yeah, the yeah, the only time she's like smiling and yeah, it's 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 kind of like a dreamlike mm. smile or like maybe it's like a stupor of some kind. Mm. But the only time she's smiling is when she is seeing herself in this dance. Uh, is mm-hmm. the, she's kind of like smiling while she's dancing with with the partner. And so like maybe this you know, her, her sense of isolation about the, I guess we are just talking about what we think happened. Um, I suppose. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. So, um, her, her sense of like isolation from the world is, is at an end once she's sort of embraced this fate. And then she, she does push against it at, at the last moment in her last sort of act of defiance. Yeah. That nice, the, the handprint left in the sand and it doesn't seem like they're eating her, but it does have that now very classic shot of all the ghouls coming down. Yeah. They all, they all, yeah. All their faces in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then she is, she's, she's taken away to somewhere else. So the director and writer have chosen never to answer the question of like what they think was really happening. They just tossed around some, like some theories that other people have, Sure, which is good. I think that's, that's the way people should treat their finished product. (laughs) <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. that thing is that thing is done. I'm going to shut up about it forever. Yeah. In this particular instance, I really like that, you know, they never came out and said, well, this is exactly what happened. The movie still ended. I think it's still a satisfying ending that leaves you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It leaves enough room to talk about it. Whereas just recently I I was at a film festival and saw a handful of short films where you know, you get to the ending and it's it's as if the movie had just stopped five minutes early. Yeah, we ran out of film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, wait, I can tell that you wanted me to be like, oh, I wonder what happened or what he ended up deciding. But it's totally unsatisfying. Right. I think it's just a cop out. Yeah. So I'm glad that they did it very well in this case. No, I, I think so. I, I think it's I think it's it all closes out pretty well. I, um, I I know one of the popular theories is that this is all like the last thoughts of her like drowning Mm-hmm. Mind, I don't like that. It feels a little too pat for me. Well, it's also very. I read about there is that short short story that Wikipedia mentions, occurrence, occurrence at Owl, Owl Creek Bridge. Yeah, and that that is the plot of that. Apparently, is that it's the whole story is the last thoughts between falling and and in the neck breaking on a on a noose. It's a it's a guy being hanged. They drop him off the the bridge so that. The hang will kill him. He fantasizes that the rope snaps. He's able to swim to freedom. He's able to go, like, find some other soldiers. Because mm-hmm. I think he's, like, a captured, like, Union soldier or something. Oh, I think it might have even been Confederate. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Anyway, Civil War soldier. Yeah. You know, he he's uh, he, he fantasizes all this. And then the last paragraph is like, but none of that happened. His neck snaps <laughs> at the end of the rope. <laughs> right. And, yeah, it's said to, it's said to be to be a little bit based on that. But yeah, no, I don't think that's what happened. I I think somehow she's she's violated the laws of of nature and mm-hmm. there's like there's a bead on the abacus that needs to be slid over hmm. one one side and I I think the man is kind of like a psychopomp 
who's supposed to... I'm not familiar with that phrase. Uh, like Charon from Greek mythology. Uh, it's someone someone who takes you to the afterlife as a psychopomp. Oh, okay. Got it. So I, I think he's supposed to like ease her passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I, you know, in, in my head canon, everyone at that at that dance hall, all of the ghouls were in a similar situation of like these are people who who died in like similar circumstances mm-hmm. um, around the same time. And so you're, you're, you're partnered up with someone in right in this this dance macabre. And she somehow wriggled her way out and she's just kind of delayed the inevitable for a few days uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then reality kind of catches up with her. That's what I think happened. That's my elaborate <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's how I would, I would think of it. You know, if you wanted like a, a literal interpretation of it all of what's happening. And the only other way I would look at it would be, it's almost like a parable, like metaphorical story rather than, so it's almost like the answer doesn't matter of like, uh, you know, what's the timeline or, how did this happen or any of that? Because it's more about those themes of dealing with men and dealing with other people and and everybody's ideas for you. And I even noticed, like when I was thinking back on it, it was like, wait, she's even kind of technically killed by men because it's the it's the guys in the other car who run them off the road. Yeah, it's, it's their it's their fault. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, wow, just start to finish. And then those guys pretend that like none of this was happening. Do you remember that? They they're when the police are interviewing that guy, he's like, Yeah, she was trying to she was, I guess, trying to get around us. Right. Yeah. Just tries to plays it off and he even gets asked, like, you sure you didn't run them off or something like that? They don't mention the drag race at all. Right. Yeah, of course, because they're scared and don't want to take responsibility. So you get the sense that these those two guys in that car were like, we got to get our story straight. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. before the cops come, here's, here's, here's what we say happened. And as far as we know, they face no consequences. Probably not. But so I, I guess that's all to say, just that I, I really enjoy the, those more metaphorical interpretations of the movie more than looking at it strictly as a, a horror movie. Yeah, me too. Um, also, I, I do want to say salt air pavilion, mm-hmm. uh, which was the the pavilion that her Carvey saw from the road, which inspired the whole thing. It still exists, but we are on the third pavilion right now. Ah, uh, yeah the the ship of Theseus, salt air pavilion. Yeah, well, it's 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 in the same like spot, but a couple things. One, the the lake had uh, receded by the time that the it looked like it in the movie. Yeah, yeah, the movie. So you can see those like those like pilings and stuff from like an old dock or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the Salt Air Pavilion is itself kind of a ghost because that is the second Salt Air Pavilion because the first one had burned down. So like there's there's that extra layer to it. I don't know if that's yeah. Oh yeah, wasn't it? It was like in the 30s or something that it first burned down. Yeah. So I don't know if that's serendipity or, or what, but they built a second one on the exact same spot. So there's this mm-hmm. this double layer of like the building itself also wouldn't die. So yeah, yeah, I like that. And then it. And then it burned down again in the in the sixties. <laughs> burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the third one stayed up. Yep. <laughs> and it was it was at at the time of its opening, like one of the largest uh, dance halls, concert venues in the country. So in Salt Lake City. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. John. John, where'd you, where'd you go? John, where'd you John? John?
Well, that was that was weird. Should we do segments? Yeah, let's let's do some some segments. All right. So in the latter half after our break, we do our little segments. Number one, who's that jabroni? Zombie movies are famously full of character actors and faces you've seen in a crowd. Uh, except for this one, it turns out. But uh, we, we, we address various jabronis that you, you can't quite place. These are going to be some short ones, I think. Herc Harvey, we already talked about. He is the, mm. uh, the, the ghoul. But I promised you that you had probably seen some of his work before. John, are you familiar with the uh, TV comedy show Mystery Science Theater 3000? Yes, I am. A good many episodes uh, that where they're the films they are lampooning are some of his work. I had seen some of them before and just hadn't realized it. Some of his the educational films and Centron stuff. Yeah, uh, most famously, uh, "Shake Hands with Danger" is is probably the <laughs> the most famous. He directed that. I love the title. Okay, "Shake Hands with Danger." What's it about? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's in industrial safety around, uh, heavy, heavy machinery. Um, and there's like some classic MST 3k stuff about it. They also did, uh, like why study industrial arts, uh, which was another one of his like educational films about, you know, encouraging people to, to have a career in the trades. <laughs> So, yeah, I just I thought that was interesting, though. Uh, oh, I had, I have actually seen some of his work before. <laughs> it's it's being made fun of by uh, Tom Servo and and Crow Robot. But I there's have... very few higher honors. Truly, I agree. Because that means it's it's like weird or bad enough to still be fascinating. Yeah, weird, weird and bad and public domain enough to uh, yeah. <laughs> to be of interest. <laughs> So I just I, I thought that was a, a, a neat little uh, bit of synchronization between like you know things I've I've seen before and things I'm experiencing now. And did he did he end up making anything after this? Well, he continued working in that industry for basically the rest of his life, and now there's a uh, uh, okay. s- yeah. So this was his only like feature film. Got it. And he's commented he he and John Clifford comment a couple times like. It's really funny that uh, our our only feature film was a failure, and it's the thing that we are most known for. Uh, <laughs> because he, you know, he 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 really uh, bristled at at the common thing of like, oh, Herc Harvey never went on to make another film. No, he went on to make dozens of films. They just weren't mm-hmm. like features or ones that you uh, know. Yeah, right. Um, but no, he was he was a working he was a working director and and you know right up to the end and now the university in Lawrence has a soundstage named after him. Oh, that's that's sweet. So that's great. Yeah, I'm I am glad he he lived long enough to see his movie uh, become a cult classic. Yeah, because well we'll we'll talk about this when we get into other bits and bobs. Sydney Berger, you're doing two jabronis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got two jabroni. I, I assume you have zero jabronis. Mine is also Sydney Burger. Oh, okay. Uh, why don't, why don't you do Sydney Burger then? Okay. Well, you, yeah, you fill in any blanks that I missed. But like we said, he's, he just seems so perfectly cast as the epitome of a sleaze ball. I hope he was not in any way like that in real life. But what I thought, uh, I, I don't get that impression. Good. Uh, what 
intrigued me about looking up him was that, if I recall correctly, his only two film credits are this movie, Carnival of Souls, and the 1998 remake of Carnival of Souls, where he played a, a bit part as a cop, apparently. And he, he, I guess, came much more from a theater background, uh, which Candace Hillogast did as well. But you mentioned he was a graduate student at the time at the University of Kansas. And the extra little bits that I saw were that he became the chairperson of the acting and drama department at the University of Houston. That's correct. And he also uh, started and was the director of the Houston Shakespeare Festival. And I think there's another children's festival of some kind. And his, according to IMDb, his students at various times included the actors <laughs> Randy Quaid, Dennis Quaid. And? Brent Spiner. Yes. And Brett Cullen, who I don't actually recognize. <laughs> uh, once, once uh, when I watched this with my wife, once we realized that he was Brent Spiner's acting instructor, so many things fell into place <laughs> for us. <laughs> um, About Brent Spiner? Yeah, when, whenever we watched next generation he's he's so hammy in that yeah and we we always call that spider time we're like oh here we go it's it's spider time now whenever he's like this is an episode where i'm pretending to have emotions so i'm gonna act like a like a goof like a big old dumb goof uh we would be like all right it's it's spider time now and so like we 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 got to, to, to really see the origin of spider time um <laughs> uh and and you can you can kind of see it you can kind of see that there's like there's something there's something in this performance that's like it sure. would not feel out of place in an episode where data is like on the holodeck and then the holodeck malfunctions and and turns him into a a sleaze boy oh yeah yeah definitely i really like that you know both both quaid brothers were apparently students because they have such wildly different acting styles i think so it's just kind of it, it's funny seeing that those are the three names like if you could pick at random <laughs> who you thought were the students of this guy i don't know that you would pick those three um i i do actually have one more jabroni uh from the from the crew um mm. reza reza Badi. i should have looked up how to pronounce this oh, the, he's from iran right an iranian cinematographer or what was it yeah he he was the um he was like assistant director on this second unit and assistant director. Uh, and then he went on to become like one of the most prolific, like TV directors. Oh, and cool. then he, he also designed like, like title sequences and stuff. Yeah. He, mm -hmm. he never went a day without work, <laughs> you know, pretty yeah. good way to get started. Pretty, pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like I said, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the extent of the jabronis. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, maybe the landlady, but I I didn't. She was in a a production of Harvey that um, oh the that, Jim Jimmy Stewart movie yeah 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 uh, so yeah she was in a, a production of that that the director saw and he he liked her in that so uh, yeah I I can see that she would be good in that role. Well, we should step in, put on your ponchos, and step into the splatter zone. We're in Uncle Savini's splatter zone, where we talk about an effect that we saw maybe how they how they did it or if we don't know that how we think they would have done it do you got anything for this because i there is maybe one effect in this whole movie <laughs> yeah 
yeah um i've i've got one and a half um the half i would say is the uh kind of watery overlay on a couple of shots where it's showing a transition from mary's normal life to being in this weird purgatory where she can't hear anything yeah um yeah, it's like there's it, there's some kind of water flowing over the camera almost. By by the way, I I did like that it it was watery looking. Yeah, because uh, it's you know that's that's how she dies, <laughs> so it, it makes sense right, that there yeah. would there would be that. But uh, go go on, please. Yeah, and I think I mean I'm not sure exactly how they did that, although I can think of plenty of ways they could have they could have uh, shot the shot the real shot and then printed that on film and then put that under a pane of glass with water flowing over it and then recorded. Right. I, I assume that was done in the, in, in the dark room. Yeah. Right. Right. Optical effect basically. Um, and then the other, the other effect for me was actually just the car driving off of the bridge at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that because in the shot, when the shot starts, the car is already like, in progress going off the bridge the railing has busted out and you see the car tumble and actually fall into the river upside down Mm -hmm. and obviously it was a real car and they did all of those things but i was thinking like okay it fell upside down so i can't imagine they had like stunt drivers in there but when i went i tried to like freeze frame and kind of step through but it's really you can barely see inside the car and so i couldn't figure out like okay if they had dummies then how did they actually rig this up in order to get the car to accelerate off of the bridge or to be pushed or whatever? Cause it wasn't clear from the shot itself where that could have happened. Yeah. And it, it obviously it, it has a little like velocity yeah. uh, while it's, yeah. while it's gone because it doesn't just like tip off. So they didn't just mm-hmm. push it. Yeah. I very much doubt they had stunt drivers. I, I, cannot imagine uh there's a safe way to to do that <laughs> no. in a on a location so yeah i i assume they somehow like just maybe stuck a brick on the gas pedal or something yeah something like that and then just you know got out of the way <laughs> yeah some something like that that's that's the only thing i, I can imagine happening mm. uh that is a good question if if you if you are a, a stunt driver or coordinator uh, please, please tell us how they did that. How does a car go into the water? Uh, there, there is one effect I can think of where she, uh, while she's driving, sees the man in her window. Right, the very first time, right? Yeah, and it's it's pretty brief. It's pretty brief, but he's just like mm-hmm. reflected in the window. That was not a composite, which was my first thought. That'd be the the normal way to do it, or the expensive Hollywood Hollywood way. Yeah, they didn't they didn't have the budget or. Uh, facilities or even really the knowledge of, of how to do that. So um, mm-hmm. the story changes slightly depending on like what year he was asked how he did it. it it's a, it's a real simple trick where they, uh, they, you know, they lit up the director who was either standing next to the car or in the back seat, depending again mm-hmm. on like which version of the legend he's telling. <laughs> right. And they, uh, they, they lit him real brightly. And then they used a mirror to reflect that, uh, his appearance under the window. So it's almost like a it's pepper's ghost is. Yeah. So that's, that's neat. Um, uh, <laughs> cause I, I assumed watching it like, Oh, that's green screened. But then I found out, no, they actually couldn't. 
a, a green screen was not in the budget. <laughs> right. Yeah. For this. So, um, but it, they pulled it off. It looks great. Yeah. They, and they did it in camera. I think that's, that's wonderful. So there, there we go. All, all one and a half <laughs> special <laughs> effects. I do want to say, uh, one other thing about the makeup actually, uh, I, yep. I think one of the reasons why the grease paint works so well for me is that unless you put on grease paint very, very thick, it does not go on evenly. Hmm. So like the fact that you can see all of these little like creases and folds and like patchiness to it, mm-hmm. I think makes everyone look more corpse-like. Sure. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I, I, I think it uh, it's, it's very striking, that makeup. Actually, I would say that's a good example of like, just in general, it's like the whole movie, they used every limitation to their advantage. Because it's like, I, I read that, that some people often complain about the, the ADR, the post-recording, on some of the scenes. But it's like, when those things happen, it's usually when Mary is, you know, in one of her episodes or like something weird is happening. So it's almost like the crappy audio, like adds to the the unsettling feeling and and all of these simple tricks because they didn't have any money you know it just elevated a yeah. lot of these these things that's really cool the, i mean yeah the, the sense that she's out of sync with reality um right and right. like her her footsteps aren't perfectly in sync is it adds to the uncanniness uncanniness i like that yeah and he he's even said like that's that's the one thing people ask like when when this gets new releases like are you going to fix that and he goes no. <laughs> uh, what am I George Lucas? Well, yeah, that, that scene where um, she tries to shoot John and he dodges out of the way uh, is <laughs> that doesn't that hasn't aged well. It didn't even look good at the time, especially with all that green makeup on John. <laughs> When they when they add the scene uh, where uh, Mary Henry confronts Jabba the Hutt, like what is what is that? What is that really adding to it? <laughs> that whole number with her in the bikini singing uh, a cabaret song. I don't know, man. Yeah, I I don't remember how we got to here, but I think it's just the the simple effects and the the sort of the patchiness of the grease paint is what you're talking about. Make yeah, it. Uh, it it yeah, un- uncanniness was the word we we settled on. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's that was well, that 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 Bergman feel that he was trying to reach for. Yeah, and what was that quote that you you sent me about Bergman? The look, the look of a cocktail and the feel of a Bergman, or maybe it was the other way around. It doesn't really matter. He was. I guess. I guess we are now on uh, choke on him, which is our our last thoughts that we don't want to choke on after the podcast <laughs> is is over. <laughs> Uh, we don't want to go. Ah, no, I should have put that in there. Yeah. So he was he he wanted because the budget was so low. He's like, what if we tried to make it look like a like a foreign film? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. And I, I there's something to that because like in the in the 60s that was there there was a market for that and he he found a distributor called like Hertz Hertz Lion. Yeah, that was it. That he he thought would um, would be able to distribute this in in those like kind of art markets. Part of the problem was that uh, that distributor might have been a uh, scam because the, mm. <laughs> the the check bounced and the and the like business contact he had like disappeared. <laughs> so so it cool. didn't. Yeah, okay. it didn't. So that was a problem. 
And an, another another issue he faced was that um, so it does it does look like you know a sixties mm. kind of new wave film for a lot of it uh, in in part mm. because like you talked about utilizing the limitations and this uh, kind of lascivious salacious poster uh, that it was released on where where you can see Candace Hillegas's nips even even says it's it's a new wave picture so they were they were they were definitely trying to lean into that so part of uh part of the problem though was that um when they started trying to find like these art house distributors in new york Mm -hmm. they were like well it's pretty good but our audience is really only interested in these things if they are foreign movies so the the world was not ready for like a homegrown american like independent cinema verite thing uh they, they thought there was no money to be made on it and it, it it took until like home video distribution to to actually grow any kind of following is that did you have any other bits yeah i got one more but i want to give you a chance it's not just uh this this big jug of milk over here talking well i guess i i could follow that up just by saying that for me watching it you gave me that quote about bergman and cocteau um i can definitely i can see visually how this movie like fit in pretty well with the time and like you said other foreign art house films like seventh seal we brought up and that that sort of black and white square frame a lot of uncanniness like we talked about oh and, and that's in that scene where she's uh playing the organ in a trance and there's just the big slash of light on her on her eyes <laughs> yeah that was very classic hollywood sort of a yeah a touch and i think i could also you know, not necessarily as a direct influence, but I could see how it was an early example of American new wave stuff. Like one of the first things that reminded me of was the director, John Cassavetes. Do you know him? Yeah. I went back and looked at some of the movies and it's not like they have a different sense of style, but I think there is that same sense of like almost realness to it. Like with the... Like a magical realism kind of... Yeah, that'd be a good way to put it. Um, And just like a lot of focus on close-ups and occasional like handheld cameras. And even though it's certainly informed by their industrial and educational background, they were willing to let or just display a lot of their creativity that I can imagine they might've had bottled up for a long time if they were working on industrial films. Yeah. uh, There was some interview I watched with them. And uh, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I should be more diligent about taking notes, but um, <laughs> they talked about, uh, you know, John, John Clifford and Eric Harvey talked about making a movie to, to please themselves rather than, tr- than trying to, to please other people with it. And there's, you, you can see that of, Hey, we, we made something creative and we're proud of it. Yeah, I, I do really, I'm impressed with what they managed to put together with this film. It's, it's pretty cool. And I can see why it became a, a cult classic. Yeah, I can too. Um, this movie is also kind of put in conversation with Psycho and The Haunting. Sure. Uh, from around the time, which with both had uh, prominent female leads. And, and certainly I, I see that more even with, with The Haunting, where there's this woman who's kind of like just distanced from society and is looking for a, a place and, and finds it in this, in this horrifying haunted house. Mm. Where where she she finally feels home, um, and then Psycho and and this movie also both kind of start as a as a road movie, mm-hmm. um, and then both both become 
more of a, a gothic uh, picture. Sure. That's also a, a great word for it, gothic. Well, I, I have to I have to credit my source, uh, Kimberly. Mon- I'm sorry, Doctor Kimberly Montaigne uh, wrote an article in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies uh, about this movie and uh, women women in road movies mm-hmm. uh, from the time. So, in in that article, by the way, uh, a surprising lack of articles written about this this movie. You can find. Dozens of stuff written about like Dawn of the Dead, but uh, mm-hmm. very, very little about this. Anyway, quoting from her article, she says, The road film's emphasis on mobility, freedom, escape, and wide open vistas would seem to defy the very foundation of a gothic sensibility. Space that is enclosed, condensed, or convoluted, accompanied by a sense of vision that is dark, partial, and given over to inward reflection. Yet when women take the wheel in truncated road films, it is precisely these gothic conventions that most accurately describe the journeys our protagonists endure. And I'm reading that in part because I agree with it and because it, it feels pleasant on, on the mouth to, to, to read that one. <laughs> so that's Dr. Kimberly Montaigne. I should also, uh, the, the quote I read earlier from Merritt Meacham of University of Utah, uh, that came from the Bright Wall Dark Room journal i believe and it was issue 80 in february 2020 if anybody feels like looking it up we'll pop the citations in the notes yeah yep yep. uh i have one unless you want to go no go for it okay so i know that this isn't a regular segment but i do find it hilarious how often orson wells comes up in our conversations and something that that made me laugh was reading about this film this paragraph on wikipedia it's also worth noting that the French short film version of An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, uh, which was that, that old Confederate hanging story, was screened in 1964 as an episode of The Twilight Zone. And significantly, another episode of The Twilight Zone, entitled The Hitchhiker, which you mentioned, yeah. consists of a story that bears similarities to both Carnival of Souls and Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. That's right. The Hitchhiker was originally a radio play, and... It became a Mercury Theater production starring Orson Welles as a driver on a cross-country trip from Brooklyn to California, who, after an auto accident, repeatedly encounters the same hitchhiker. The, when they made it for The Twilight Zone, they recast Orson Welles' character as a woman, uh, played by the actor Inger Stevens. Okay. And I think, that, I think that is a stronger choice. I'm not familiar with that, that actress. I, I've only seen her in that one. I just wanted to to highlight that uh, a, a a woman played played the role, and uh, I, I think that's a that's a big reason that's put in a conversation with this with this film. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Well, it was also it was. I mean, the the original radio play was was also written by a woman. So, like, you you can see how that experience might be based on some of her own fears and anxieties. Um, sure. Not to to insist that biography is everything. No, I I can see that. Yeah, yeah, I, I got nothing left to choke on. Yeah, <laughs> time to rate this sucker. Rating of the dead. Uh, we decide which Romero dead movie it's most like and rate it out of five. So I believe I went first. 
last time. Why don't you why don't you go first this time? We don't have to pick the same movie, we don't have to pick the same rating. Okay. Uh well, in my case, I am going to rate Carnival of Souls as four out of five Night of the Living Deads. And I think the the reason for that is obviously it it most resembles uh that movie being like aesthetically, yeah. Yeah, aesthetically, exactly. Um we know that we can at least imagine that Romero was inspired by a number of things in this movie, um, or at least that they had very similar ideas. And I like that they both, they're both kind of gritty in their own ways. Like it's something you would expect to see in the middle of the night on TV, having heard nothing about it Mm, and mm -hmm, be very mm -hmm. creeped out afterwards. Like I I think they fill that slot. And they're, they're both in the public domain. So there's that. Also true. Uh, I'm, I'm going to rate this uh, four out of five uh, Dawn of the Deads uh, for similar reasons, only because I feel like Dawn of the Dead uh, has a bit more like road movie in it. Mm. Okay. Sure. And the the way the, the main characters fall apart, uh, I, I think, more closely resembles Mary Henry's journey. Okay. I can also see how they kind of have similar like environment as character. Yeah. Really, really New York city is the other main character in both of those movies. New York city. That's a sex in the city. reference. I'm sorry. I'll never, I'll never do it again. (laughs) Okay. No, I've never, I've never actually seen any of it. I didn't recognize that. Me me neither. I know people just talk about it that way. (laughs) I'm, I'm supposed to, there's a, there's a list of, uh, of sex in the city episodes. I'm, I'm supposed to watch. I'm sure you'll get around to it eventually. Yeah, that's that's that. I I really liked this this movie. Me too. I'm really glad you recommended it or suggested it. Yeah, absolutely. So am I, because because now I got to to watch this really cool thing. And we would encourage any of you who can find a uh, dusty old copy buried halfway into the sand uh, to give it a watch. That's right. Uh, Theron, Theron, do you? Do you hear that creepy organ music again? Where's that coming from? No, but I... Uh, oh, the glass is breaking. Oh, the zombies found us again. Are they... Downstairs? They don't seem to notice us. They're moving around. They look like they're... Dancing. Well, we should probably sign off and go kill them. All right, John. So uh, I've been Theron, and with me is John. And remember, if you kill the brain... John? John, where'd you go? John? John?